15 this morning, Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. When I was a kid, I was fearless. Some would say stupid. I'm going to use the word fearless. Uh, I bet all of us have stories of when we were kids and the senseless things that we used to do. Things that you would never do now. Things that you would never even consider doing now. Like swinging on the swings. Right? You remember this? I'm sure all of us have the same, I'm, I'm just going to guess, all of us have the same experience of when we were kids swinging on the swings. You'd go as high as you could go until the chain on the swing got slack in it, and then it would snap to, and you'd go swinging through, right? As fast as humanly possible, your hair's blowing back. Is that good enough? No. You'd swing all the way through up to the highest point on the other side, and what would you do? jump. Every single one of us did the same thing. You get as high as you possibly could and then you would just let go of your seat and fall all the way to the ground. And the best scenario was you had a friend to do it with you. Both of you would compete as to how high you would go and how far you would fall. I swung with, uh, I swung? Swung with my kids on the swings the other day. I was going to show them how high I could get, you know that I still had it in me, get going and get the chain has slack in it, and I swing through. I go through a couple times, I get motion sickness. <laughs> you can't, I'm like, I gotta, I'm going to stop now before I <laughs> throw up on this playground. Like, or how about riding bikes? Growing up, I grew up on top of the crest. I was on the, our house was on the crest of a giant hill, or at least it was big to me at the time. I was a kid. It's probably not that big. But the point is that if I wanted to go to either of my friends' houses on either direction, I'd be going downhill. And so I would get on my bike and we would go down the hill, or I'd go down the hill as fast as I possibly could. But was that good enough? No, that wasn't good enough. I had to let go of the handlebars. And had to go no hands the entire way to show everyone just how brave I was, right? But then after a while, that didn't do it anymore. Then I had to take my left foot and had to put it on the bar that goes between your legs to the seat. And then take my right foot and put it on the seat. Hold on to the handlebars, like go like a skateboard down the road. Now this was before we wore helmets, Right? Now, people wore them, I'm sure, but we had a name for people that wore helmets back then. Now your kids can't walk outside the front door without a helmet on, right? But we didn't have helmets on back then. There is a fearlessness that comes with being a kid, mainly because we, have, we had no real sense of death. We had no real conception of what that was. They're too young to grasp it. And for most kids, they've never seen anyone that died of anything except for old age. And so for us, there was just no chance. And even if we did experience someone dying at a young age, the chances of our brains being able to connect reckless behavior and death were just non-existent or very slim. And, and in addition to that, we had rubber bones. I'm not sure if I can prove that scientifically, but I'm convinced that kids have rubber bones. Nothing hurts them, it seems. But as we get older, we gain a healthy respect, maybe even you would say a fear of death. 
It governs many of our choices. Our, our choices for the positive. We eat healthy foods, maybe. We get flu shots. It governs our choices for the negative. We avoid riding our bicycles like skateboards. Or maybe avoid bicycles altogether. We put on our seatbelts when we drive. Wouldn't think of driving without your seatbelt. Christmas is a time in the church calendar when we celebrate the incarnation of the Savior of the world. The incarnation of the eternal Son of God. The day when Jesus came into our world in human flesh. That's what incarnation means. In flesh. In our passage this morning, what we're going to see is that the author of Hebrews is going to tell us the reason that Jesus took on flesh. And when all is said and done, I hope what it encourages us to do is to move back to the time like when we were kids. So let's look at our passage this morning, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Now, at first, Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 might seem like a strange text to go to on the sermon right before Christmas. It doesn't seem like that much of a Christmassy text. But as you scour your Bible, and particularly in the New Testament, you find the New Testament authors making reference to the, the reason the eternal Son of God took on flesh in the first place. Now, if you're not familiar with the book of Hebrews, the vast majority of the book is telling you of all the things that Jesus is better than and why. Jesus is better than this. Jesus is better than that. Jesus is better than this. And most of it has to do with the Jewish worshiping, uh, uh, worshiping in the Jewish temple. And so the, the title in our English Bibles is somewhat generic. It's just the Hebrews. Just Hebrews. The audience, though, that the book is written to is not really stated in the book at, at all, really. And so we're pretty sure, though, that the book is written to a Jewish community, mainly because there's so much about Jewish ritual practices in it, Jewish practices in worship. And so you would think that the person receiving it would be steeped in Jewish tradition. And the person also that's writing it would probably also be, obviously is, very familiar with Jewish worship practices. But it also seems that the author knows exactly to whom he's writing. It doesn't seem like it's just this general letter that's just meant to be passed around to various congregations. He tells them at the end of the letter to pray for him that he may return to them. So it seems like a specific group of people are in mind that he's writing to. But there are many mentions throughout the letter of this temptation to fall away from the confession, from their confession of Jesus Christ as Lord. And so it also seems that these outside pressures are coming into this community and they're perhaps even persecuting them and it's leading them toward abandoning their confession of Jesus and returning to Judaism. 
Which is why he comes in and says, Jesus is better than that. Jesus is better than that. Jesus is better than that. Don't return to those things. Don't be tempted to return to those things. He reminds them, Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured hard struggle, endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. And then he encourages them, Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. So he's challenging them. You're facing sufferings, but let's, let's come together as a Christ-confessing community and let's go where Jesus is and let's endure the reproach that he endured. So throughout the letter, they're reminded that the Christian life comes with hardships and it comes with challenges and it even comes with persecution. But he's telling them to endure don't return to the former life, and in, which is in their case, Judaism. Now that brings us to the passage that we're in this morning, and it brings it into sharp focus, I think. Now I want you to picture an underground church. I don't mean a church that's literally under. I mean a church that is silent. A church that meets together without being detected by the outside world. They don't have signs in their yard. They don't have a parking lot. They have a small room in a house. They meet on Sunday morning, early in the morning, or perhaps even late in the evening to avoid suspicion. They don't use instruments in their worship so that they're not heard by their neighbors, let's say be turned in. Every shadow that passes by on the street of people walking by to and fro, they're nervous, they send chills down their spine because it could be the guards coming to disrupt their service and haul them off to prison. They fear that their employer may find out that they're Christians and fire them, and worse, put them on a list of people that you cannot hire, that are never to work again, and it's all for being Christian. Now, if you're in that community in the first century, you're nervous about people dragging you off to death and worried about what, what people are going to do as a repercussion for you worshiping God. You come to your assembly. You see that Sunday after Sunday, many are tempted to just abandon this whole Jesus thing. Maybe we had this wrong, they say. What kind of God would let his worshipers suffer the way we're suffering and, and make his people endure this kind of thing. Now we're just taking someone's word that he rose from the dead. I didn't see him rise from the dead. Did you see him rise from the dead? I certainly didn't. So in the midst of that assembly comes this letter, probably from the Apostle Paul, or at least someone very close to him, and they read it aloud by candlelight, in a voice that's just a little above a whisper. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We see in our passage the incarnation of Jesus. 
that blessed Christmas morn, He Himself likewise partook of flesh and blood. The author of this book is drawing the minds of the people reading this who are facing persecution straight to the Incarnation. Think about the birth of Jesus. But it's not just the birth of Jesus. It's His death, His burial, and His resurrection as well. See, when we come to the manger scene every Christmas, we can't just stop there. Our minds have to consider the entire story, the whole thing. The author of Hebrews is wanting the incarnation of Jesus, the Christmas story, to point out at least two significant truths to us. First, that Jesus assumed our nature so that He could become our substitute. Jesus assumed our nature so that He could become our substitute. Look closely at verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that's like body and soul, He took on our nature, our body and soul, He Himself likewise partook of the same things. That is, He took on flesh and blood. He took on our nature, our bo- a body and a soul. And so you've got to think, when you first read that, the very idea that God could become flesh, that of Jesus becoming human on the surface, is at least a little silly. It's at least a little silly when we look at it. We know it is because even the Bible testifies to the fact that it's silly. It tells us that the very notion that people thought of, the very notion that a, a God could not only become human, but then that He would die. Paul says is foolishness to those who are perishing. That's ridiculous. Why on earth would he do that? And all of us, at some time or another, have had to wonder, why would Jesus become a baby? Why would he do that? The author of Hebrews spent some time answering the question for us. In the, verse just prior, in the verses just prior to verse 14, he's basically making the point that Jesus did come and He did take on flesh and blood and was for a while made a little lower than the angels, it says. And it says in verse 10, the reason why He did it. There is a precise reason why He did it. And he says in verse 10, and the purpose was so that He could bring many sons to glory. You see that there in verse 10? He's bringing many sons to glory. You get why He says that? You get that He says that? His purpose was not merely to experience life the way we experience it. Though that certainly is part of it, it's not the only reason. He didn't just come to experience things the way we experience it. It's more than that. He came so that we could experience life the way He experiences it. It's a reversal. But why did He have to become human? It's not until at least verse 17 that we get an answer. He says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Why? To make propitiation for the sins of the people. This is the reason. So that he could make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, what is propitiation? It's a fancy word, but what does it mean? It is very simply the turning away of anger by the offering of a gift. It's the turning away of anger by the offering of a gift. 
It's the making of reconciliation between two parties. The word has often been used by pagans throughout the years um, in their worship. They thought of their gods as being these unpredictable beings that were capricious. They just get mad all the time. And they were liable to become angry with their worshipers. And so as their worshipers came to the temple or to come to worship them, if there were some kinds of disaster that struck, they would reason that it was God that had become angry or is that it was a God that had become angry. And so the way to, to satisfy the deity was to make a sacrifice without delay. Uh, just do it as quickly as you, as you could. A, a, a well-chosen offering. Just put it there on the altar and it would appease the God and it would put Him in a good mood again. This process was called propitiation. Appeasing the wrath of a God. The author of Hebrews says that it was Jesus who became like us so that He might make propitiation for our sins. It was the heart of the Christian gospel message that Christ is appeasing the wrath of a holy God who is rightly offended by our sin. But God, who is as merciful and gracious as He is just, sent His perfect Son to bear His wrath so that we wouldn't have to. That's, that's the heart of the gospel message. But then why did he have to become human? Well, simply put, the death penalty was given to mankind. The death penalty was given to mankind. You remember a couple of weeks ago when we were, uh, look, looked at the story in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve were, had eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and had disobeyed the command that God had given them, God gave to mankind the death penalty. How is it then that Jesus could pay man's death penalty if he wasn't a man? It's not possible for him to pay the death penalty of mankind if he wasn't a man. That's not how it works in God's world. According to the author of Genesis, and really to all the biblical writers for that matter, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect to make propitiation for the sins of the people. But it wouldn't be good enough that he was simply... Man. Plenty of men had come before him. Plenty of men had shown promise. Plenty of men had looked as though they were going to be good men. Think of King David, Moses, people like that. All of them exhibited a fallen nature since they were children of Adam. So it's clear that this Messiah had to be fully man so that he could pay the penalty that man owed. But he also had to be fully God, so that he actually had righteousness with which to pay the penalty. A God-level righteousness that man could not and would not ever have. So he had to be truly man. He also had to be truly God. So Jesus assumed our nature so that he could become our substitute. The second thing that I want you to see is that Jesus destroyed the devil and delivered his people. Jesus destroyed the devil and delivered his people. Look at what he says at the end of verse 14. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is, the devil. 
He didn't just become like us, but in so doing, through his death, he destroyed the devil, who the author says has the power of death. Now, it's important that we understand the role that Satan has played throughout history and how this passage is saying his role has now changed in light of the death of Christ. First, you'll recall Satan is there again back in Genesis chapter 3. Satan comes into the Garden of Eden. He's the serpent that comes to the couple and he begins talking with Eve. The serpent has already expressed he has nefarious motives or the author of Genesis has told us that he has nefarious motives. We're not supposed to trust this serpent. In fact, we see at the beginning of Genesis chapter 3, it says uh, he was more crafty than the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. And so he was going to demonstrate his craftiness by coming to Eve and deceiving her by turning God's words. He'll surely not die. But this same figure, Satan, appears again in the book of Job where he appears before the throne of God. And God asks him, where have you been? And he says to him, well, I was roaming to and from fro the earth, walking up and down on it. And we later find out in in the epistle that Peter writes that Satan uh, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So we assume that what Satan is doing in that scene in Job is not merely just walking around, but that he is looking for someone to take down, much like he did in the Garden of Eden, to which God says, have you considered my servant Job? And of course, Job, through Job, in Job, God allows Satan to try him. Now, it appears as though in Job and the rest of the Scriptures, Satan is allowed to come before the throne of God and to present to God the moral failures of people, the sins of all, if you will. And so it's helpful to know that his name, Satan, is probably more like his role, which means the accuser or the adversary. Satan literally means accuser or adversary. In fact, we're told in Revelation exactly what his role is. The angels actually sing it out loud as he's defeated. They say, the accuser of our brothers, saying that he accuses them day and night before our God. So the picture that we should have in our mind in regards to Satan is an adversary who has a penchant for entrapment. That's his sole purpose. His desire is to entrap and ensnare. And then once the bait is taken, he takes off his disguise, revealing his three-piece suit, walks right into the throne room of God, and presents to to God the, the pieces of evidence that he has in hand. And he probably says something like this. It's painfully obvious that this person is a lowlife and a scoundrel. That he has violated your commands. That he has sinned against you. And because he has sinned against you, he deserves the strictest penalty available by law. The prosecution is pushing the death penalty. Eternal death. Satan has the power of death, the author of Hebrews said, or had the power of death, similar to how a prosecuting attorney has the power of a prison sentence or the death sentence. He's got all the evidence. The judge will, will definitely find the defendant guilty. And so he goes for the death penalty every single time. 
Here is all the evidence that you need. Then, of course, Jesus comes into the world as a little baby. He grows to a man, and Satan tries these similar entrapping tricks on him in the desert. And Jesus doesn't take the bait. Jesus never takes the bait. And so what do the forces of darkness do when they don't have the evidence to convict? They cook the books. They try him in a kangaroo court and find guilty a man that is completely innocent, all at the hands of the one wielding death. It worked. Death got him. He's dead. But there was a problem. The sin of which Christ died wasn't his own, but the sins of his brothers and sisters. On the cross, the wrath of God is satisfied, and the author of Hebrews says that Jesus delivered all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. He took away the keys of death and Hades, and that's why in Revelation we see that he has them. He now has the keys of death and Hades. He took them from the devil, and he is now the sole possessor. In Revelation chapter 12, we read about what I think is the same event, but from the perspective of the war in heaven, in the courtroom of God, if you will. It says in verse 7 of chapter 12, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. When Jesus rose from the dead, he destroyed the one weapon that Satan could wield against his people, and that is death itself, by becoming man and paying the penalty for men as a man. He not only robbed Satan of his power, but he took away his job. So now Paul can say in Romans 8, 33 and 34, Who shall bring a charge? against God's elect. Who can bring a charge? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who is indeed interceding for us. What place does a prosecuting attorney have in a courtroom of God where the verdict is already in? He doesn't have a place. Every charge that is brought against God's people is now met with the response from Jesus, the defense attorney, interceding on our behalf. Objection, Your Honor. I have already served time for that offense. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, if He is not the Lord of your life, if you have chosen to play fast and loose with the gospel, with the good news of Jesus Christ, 
By perhaps rejecting him completely out of hand or perhaps acknowledging him with your lips and then walking out the door and denying him by the way that you live your life, then you've chosen to go into the courtroom of God without representation. In which case the prosecution, their case against you is legitimate. It's valid. And the foolishness of the stance that you've taken is that Jesus is offering His services to you for free. Requires you lay down your life by confessing your sins to Him now. Becoming His disciple. Dedicating your entire life to following after Him. And give worship to Him that He's rightly due. But to the rest of us, if you are a follower of Jesus, especially if you're a parent, can, can you just listen very closely as a talking code for just a minute? All right? Probably all know what I'm going to say. What could be more attractive at Christmas time than this story? What could possibly be more attractive at Christmas time? than this story. What story could be possibly more important for your kids to hear and believe than this story? And we all know that there are other stories out there that countervail the narrative that I have presented to you for the last three weeks, indeed try to present every time I stand behind the pulpit. But there are cheap knockoffs out there. But they're just that. They're cheap knockoffs. They exchange the grace and mercy and forgiveness of sin. They exchange Jesus making propitiation for us for works-based salvation. You understand that. It's an actual message that's being taught. Be good and good things will come. Be bad and bad things will come. It's an actual message that's being instilled in their minds early on. Not to mention that it comes with assistants that watch all your every move so that they can snitch on you, which is creepy. What if we spent as much time presenting the incarnation of Jesus to our children as we do other narratives? A kind hope that is given to us in the incarnation of the eternal Son of God is supposed to do something to us. It's supposed to do something to us. It's supposed to deliver us from the fear of death. As it would to the, the audience that's hearing this letter for the first time in the church that these Hebrews belong to, these former Jews belong to. That it's supposed to convince them that they shouldn't fear death. The same is true for us. The incarnation of Christ is supposed to convince us, it's supposed to do something to our hearts. It's supposed to change us in a way. You remember what it was like to be a kid and to have, to have absolutely no fear of death. You barely even knew that there, that it was such, there was such a thing. And, and if you did, it only happened to other people and, and older people and people that I don't really know. And you remember what the result was. Jump first, ask questions later. 
taking ridiculous risks on a bicycle. You see the parallels. Christ has defeated death. And if you are in Him, if you are His disciple, then death is no longer a fear for you. Death is no longer a fear for you. And what that means is that you can take incredible risks for His kingdom. You can give up what you have in this life. You reject the idea that your best life is now. If your best life is now, I'm sorry. The next isn't going to be that great. If your best life is now, it's really sad. But we can reject that idea. Eternal life waits for you on the other side. So the assault of the enemy is ultimately toothless. It has nothing to bite you with. You've been redeemed. You've been brought near to God. The little baby in the manger in Bethlehem defeated Satan and took the keys of death and Hades. How does a missionary give up everything that he has to go live with a people that he's never met, to learn a language that he's never known, to give them news they've never heard, only to have them kill him on their shores? How does he do that? It's not so that he can make the nice list. It's because he or she really believed that the baby born in Bethlehem had come to deliver them from the fear of death and and from being subject to lifelong slavery. And in the end, he did it. He actually accomplished what he came to do. And he now sits at the right hand of God. And that death isn't the last stop. So parents, especially parents of little ones, of of which I am one, spend the precious little time that we have with our children in our home trying to give them this gift. trying everything you have to give them this gift, the gift of the freedom from the tyranny of death, the gift of the glorious expectation of eternal life. Can you imagine what your child would do with that? Can you imagine what the world would do with an army of children set loose from this church equipped with the notion that death has no teeth. How would the world respond to that? They would probably try to put them to death. And their message would spread like wildfire which is exactly what happened in the first century. Spend your time. Spend your energy. Spend your efforts teaching them to find their hope in the one born in Bethlehem. 
are you grieving this Christmas? The holidays, as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, can be a terrible time for people. As they think about the people that are missing around their table. I'm going to make you a deal. And the deal is this. that I'm going to preach this to you now. So that when I'm in your shoes, you can preach it to me. Okay? Because I realize that what I'm about to say is coming from a person that's not in your shoes. It's not feeling what you feel. It's not experiencing what you experience. But I can almost guarantee you, I will one day. And so, when I'm tempted to forget, I'm going to need you to preach this to me as well. You understand? Are we in agreement? It's a deal. Okay? The message is this, grieve, but don't grieve as those who are without hope. Grieve, but don't grieve as those who are without hope. Death is not the end. It's the end of the introduction. The rest of the story is yet to come. An eternity of story is yet to come. Jesus conquered sin and death. And if our hope is found in Him, then truly, we have absolutely nothing to fear. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how difficult it is as we look into the face of death. Every single one of us, whether we know it or not, look into the face of death. And, and as we do, it's difficult to know that it has no teeth. So I pray that you give us faith where we lack it. Help us in our unbelief. Lord, I, I pray for us as a people to be so convinced and so overwhelmed by this story, by this true event 2,000 years ago of the eternal Son of God taking on flesh and being born in a manger. Being placed in a feeding trough. That as we look at that story, that it would, it would, it would be for us the catalyst to look death in the face Fearlessly. That we would know that it has no teeth because you sent your son to take them all away. Lord, if there's any in here who have not entrusted their lives to you, open their hearts that they can hear that they can see and believe the gospel may we as people spend our energies and our efforts not just with the kids in our home but with the people around us dedicating our lives our money our everything that we've got to telling them that this, this story is true 
and it means everything. Make us that kind of people, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.